welcome back, and here we go for another episode of FileMaker Talk. And who is it? It's Matt Navarro. It's Matt and Matt! Had to give us applause. Just had to do it. Nobody else does, so do it yourself. <laughs> well, how are you, sir? Not bad. How are you? Good. Really good. All right. Accidentally uh, hit it. <laughs> my fault. Life's busy, but we've made a commitment to record more often, so hopefully you're going to you'll hear from us more. Yes, uh, that is the total plan. We actually put it on the calendar where we didn't have anything on the calendar before. Just sort of let it happen. So now I get a reminder. It says record podcast. So what are we, what are we talking about this week? Um, well, we were just, just before we hit the record button, we were talking about uh, you're using Amazon Web Services and juxtaposing that against maybe using a hosting provider maybe or doing it yourself or yeah, you had a lot of benefits you were yeah, it's just like, you know, moving, I've, I've been very steadily um, helping my customers move to cloud-based FileMaker servers for years. Um, with some of the changes with the introduction of FileMaker licensing for Teams, um, it's clear that FileMaker wants users to run their own uh, servers because the way the licensing works for that. You can't connect to a generic server. The license agreement changed. So, like, um, you know, having a shared hosting thing and the security of that's not really um, on FileMaker's uh, most, you know, happy <laughs> list anymore like it used to be. <laughs> so, um, and I've been very, very happily using ODI technology um, for years for my servers. And I'm also exploring AWS servers, which really puts all of that. Uh, into my own hands to figure it all out. And it is a really complex thing. So to a large degree, I've gotten a huge appreciation for all the stuff that Joey had to engineer to get it so awesome, at, um, to get his servers to be so fast and reliable. Yeah. So when you say um, there's a lot to take in, are you talking about the Amazon control panel and all the different services Amazon offers or just configuring one FileMaker server on Amazon services? Configuring one is pretty simple, but the, but the huge array of all the products that AWS includes is really the thing. Um, so deploying, once you've kind of got your model down of what you want to do, you can deploy a server in 15 minutes. Um, and so I've been setting my servers up uh, with different levels. So there's like T2, micro, M3, medium. There's a, all these different levels that you can get, all of which include different specs for processor and RAM. And then storage is really, you can kind of do whatever you want, and there's five different levels of storage, which is hard drives. Um, so most of them are SSD, but you can also get spinning. Right. And then there's elastic IP addresses. You can get certificates purchased directly in there. You have to set up a key pair so you can log into your server. Um, you get basically a Windows 2012 server that you can log into with remote desktop. And then once you have remote desktop, you can install FileMaker server. Well, you have to use that to install FileMaker server. Um, then you've got to figure out the firewall. So there's actually a firewall built into AWS, right? which you have to create a special group that allows all the ports that you need for FileMaker. Right. You know, 5003 and 16000, et cetera. 
And then there's also the Windows firewall, which is on by default. And see, so there's a lot of little things that you have to kind of, one by one, figure them out. Yep. Um, every single one of which will stop your server from working until you have it figured out. Now, Jesse, I think uh, Jesse Barnum did a um, a session at DevCon about Amazon Web yes, Services, I think. Did. Yeah, that video might be available. This is one of the other things we were hitting on is the um, sessions from DevCon are on YouTube. Yay! Well, let's give that a applause. That is a hugely great thing. Hi. <laughs> Me and the you, you accidental button hit. And do a search for FM DevCon 2016, and poof, there they all are. Yep. Uh, I like. I, I just did a search. I don't think they've got uh, his in particular processed, and I don't know if they did record the vendor sessions. I don't know if it was a vendor session he was doing or not, because I searched for FM space DevCon space 16 and then Amazon, and I didn't find it on YouTube. Okay, so maybe that one's not posted yet. They're they're putting them all upline as they get them edited and all that. Yes, which anybody who's uh, a subscriber to uh, my magazine site over at uh, FileMakerMagazine.com, I linked uh, my DevCon session, which also has a really killer file, um, on my front page of the magazine website currently. But uh, I just did one about designing. I think we talked about that in the previous podcast. But there's, I mean, there's a lot of really good, valuable information. In fact, the interesting thing is, you know, they've been doing this. I've gone to uh, DrupalCon, which is for uh, the Drupal uh, world, a content management system. They have been posting their videos open source for, you know, going back to 2008 or, you know, way back when I first started going to a few of those. Mm -hmm. FileMakers just now, this is the first time that they've done it. And I think this is a really big benefit to their market because it is to their interests to get people educated and knowledgeable and that's what DevCon is. And so people sort of have to think, okay, for the people who attend, yes, they pay a premium, but you're paying a premium in order to go interact uh, with the people, be there live. And the biggest thing that you're paying for when you go to DevCon is the fact that you're not doing work that would otherwise prevent you from consuming the content. Because truly, in order to watch all of the sessions that you would see at a DevCon, to sit down and watch the videos, mm -hmm. people just don't do that. Yeah. But yet they're there. The information is there. The valuable things that people learn at DevCon, if you need it, it's now online and it's available. So take advantage of that. I mean, that's. I, I think I watched, actually yesterday, I watched Clay's... And I've seen it before. I've seen him do it uh, in person, the DevCon prior. And then I also watched a, a session that he did in um, the one that he did in Australia. But I watched the one that he did at this most recent DevCon. And just watching that alone, the first part of the video is uh, very introspective and talks about the history of FileMaker, which is fun. But then when he gets to describing how things work, if you just take the time to watch that video... You can at least start to understand, you know, how should I structure things? I mean, he talks a little bit about wide versus narrow tables and what happens when the relationship graph is evaluated, how many other external databases may be connected, and how many how it has to merge all of the external uh, references to other FileMaker files, look at those graphs, you know, compare all of them and create this monster massive graph that mm -hmm. just sort of evaluates everything. So you, you start to get a sense of understanding, I see where things could slow down. Right. And it's helpful. Definitely. I'll definitely I'll look at that one. 
So and one other one other subject that we have to discuss today is uh, AppWorks is releasing a free utility today called FM Log, which is a super simple lightweight logging tool that's free on App.Works. Oh, very cool. Um, so we'll talk about kind of what that is. And then next week I'll be doing a webinar on that um, um, on FM Academy. So you can certainly sign up for that. Search for FileMaker Academy. Hey, you've got a new website. App.Works. You... Uh upgraded look at that yes. you've got all the flows in as you uh, scroll down and completely mod oh that's cool i like the little building that you have at the bottom of your web page where it points to the people in the oh, windows yeah. that's true <laughs> it points to show where, where our respective offices are in the building we're in a, um, a building that's about 100 years old it's in i think it's the, the largest art deco building in portland kind of on the edge of downtown great view uh, from up here. And then we're in the penthouse suite of the buildings so of the top floor. It's kind of weird because the elevator goes to the 12th floor and we're in the 13th floor. And I don't really know why they didn't put the elevator up here if it was, if there was a, a logistical reason or if it was just superstition of the 13th floor. Yeah, wasn't there a whole era where they would, wouldn't uh, do any 13th floor elevator stops? Yeah, and no, no 13th row on an airplane and all kinds of silly things like that. <laughs> Let's just forget the number 13. Who needs it? Exactly. So let's get back to Amazon. There's a few things I, I kind of that I learned that I think would be really cool to discuss, and then love to hear from listeners about how what your experiences are with that. So you can deploy a server starting at a half a gig of RAM, which actually will work with FileMaker. Not great. You really kind of want to start with a gig, which is a T2 micro server, uh, and then get a drive as small as a 30 gig drive. So if you just want a super tiny little Dedicated FileMaker server, you can get a 30-gig SSD um, with a gig of RAM and one CPU. Um, and because it's SSD, it's actually going to be pretty fast for like 30 bucks a month. They, they sell it to you hourly, and you can get a price lookup. Now, we should, we should basically tell everybody that the way that you are charged for is, uh, I call this the nickel and dime model, because mm -hmm. you are charged for everything separately and individually. So you yep. are charged for the hard drive, you are charged for the RAM, you are charged for you know the traffic in particular. So if you've yep. got a high traffic uh, system, if you set up the box, and like I think you're experiencing right now, you're like, wow, okay, I've got a server for $150, but that doesn't include any network traffic that they're going to charge you once you start to put it into use. Right. So that you definitely need to be aware of that when you're considering a cloud service for your system versus like doing it yourself. Or, yep. Uh, Scaling it up, though, is kind of cool because all those systems are in independent from each other. So you can go from the T2 range... And actually, like a T2 medium is kind of a good-sized FileMaker server. It's got two CPUs and four gigs of RAM. Um, then you get the M. Actually, the M4 range doesn't seem to be that good, but the M3 range seems pretty good because they're like more dedicated, higher-speed processors. Uh, the M3 medium is actually one core, but it's faster. Strangely, it has 3.75 gigs of RAM, not four, but whatever. <laughs> Uh, and that one has uh, also like a really weird, super fast 4-gig SSD drive that goes away when you turn the instance off. Like if you reboot, it's gone. So it's kind of like uh, like a RAM disk, if you will. Hmm. Um, so that's that particular size is not – you wouldn't really want to put databases on it. But for other kind of a server, I guess that would be useful. But the 
there's a whole bunch of other little hidden specs and details with these servers. And they scale all the way up to like 128 gigs of RAM with 32 cores, uh, you know, and just crazy high performance. Um, That's awesome. I've, I've used it and I've spun up an instance. I have to admit I have not, uh, I've not spun up a, an instance specifically for FileMaker. But I have uh, loaded FileMaker onto a small little testing one. Um, and used it myself. I'm not managing any servers on, on AWS, but I do use other AWS services. I use, um, in particular, their email through FileMaker. So they've got the uh, the SES, I think they call it, a simple, I don't know, simple serving. And that is really awesome for anybody who's doing bulk emailing out of FileMaker. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, and then 360 works as a product... Um, but that uses that, but it makes it a little bit easier for so you don't have to do your own curl commands, basically, right? Yes, I use the I use the base elements plugin, and after you validate your domain or a specific email account, when you set that up, it's it's really nice for sending email out of FileMaker, especially if you want to send HTML email, because FileMaker won't do that uh, natively. It's only got the plain, and you can send through, say, for example, like Gmail. And Gmail will uh, limit you to, I think it's something like 500 in every 24-hour period, 500 outbound emails. But if you need to send more than that, using a service like Amazon is really pretty cool. Yeah. It'll go really fast, and you can do all of your, whatever you want in your own FileMaker database, obviously merge your uh, variables, like your name and et cetera. So. I think the benefit of systems like that, um, and the 360 works on, it's called cloud mail is that after you send your bulk mail campaign out you can find out what the open rate is and you can take a look on each person who you sent it to whether they opened it and read it and then you get full html support so you can make really pretty emails um oh so yeah you're talking and it about works like, really well with uh with um spam filters too so are you talking about like mailchimp and stuff like because i yeah. use awa a weber which is a mail service i love oh, so mail you're services. not using the amazon one for your uh, group email thing? No, like for newsletter type stuff? For the magazine website, I use AWeber. I've used that for, they were one of the first ones that came out. I've considered switching to MailChimp and other things. So that's, that I use for bulk email. But then for like conferences, when I'm doing like an online webinar, I'm actually in the middle of a two week one right now where I need to interact with a group of people. I want to send HTML and regular email, so I can't do that natively from FileMaker. So it's easier just to validate my domain in Amazon and then use the base elements plugin and just tell Amazon to send the mail for me because Amazon sending the mail won't be blocked by other receiving mail servers either because oh, okay. they're, they're whitelisted. If you try to do it all by yourself through your own mail server, then there's a high likelihood that your, uh, your sending mail server will be, you know, rejected right they've got the thing called the rbl which is basically the real-time blacklist and so just being sending it through amazon gives you a, they validate you and then it, you're less likely to you're more likely to have your email go through plus you right. can send html so good things <clears throat> and easy to do huh yeah i mean it's it's after you you just like in the amazon console you you see all the that plethora of all the icons there's something like you know fifty different icons for all the different Amazon web services they offer in their console. One of them is s e s you just go in there, 
you validate a domain in one of the many ways that they have to validate. And then once you've got that validated, you can make the connection really quickly using like a base elements plugin. Cool. So, and then, I mean, it's up to you to compose your HTML in a FileMaker field and have your plain text version, but it'll send them both. I'm actually, I take that back. I may be using the MBS plugin in order to actually send my, uh, send the mail because it's actually doing the composition to make the, uh, the, the mail, the right format. Oh, okay. You mean auto HTML plus plain text? Yeah. Something else. Where it, 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 when you look at the source of an email message, you see the two different, you see the HTML version, you see the plain text version, and it has to have an identifier for each of those, which is just a unique separator. And uh, MBS is actually what I'm doing. But it only takes like 10 lines of code. And I think he's even, I basically adapted from the example that he had on uh, the website. So I just copied his code, modified, and you're sending HTML email using a verified service provider, and it goes fast. It goes really fast. Cool. So, yeah, I like Amazon services. Yeah, there, there's such a huge, there's Glacier for backup, and there's S3 for storage. I have another project doing a switching to S3 for this huge um, block of images, like several hundred thousand photos. Oh, yeah, I'd seriously use the 360 Works their image thing because it works really well with web-based images and push them up to S3. Uh, what do you mean? If you've got large images. Well, you know, before FileMaker had its container support... Yeah, you mean uh, Super Container 360 yeah. works? Okay. So they've got the... So the Super Container is still viable in the sense that if you push your images up onto S3 and they say they're like large images, mm-hmm. that's a better way to go than try to storing them, than storing them on like the server side. Right. I think Super Container can do that, can't it? I'm not sure. Mm. If it can, that would be great. I know that actually that um, 360 Works has products. I thought it was just maybe part of the um, a different tool that had S3 stuff, but maybe it is. Maybe that's actually where that is. So that'd be good. We should. I'll get Jesse on for a podcast, and we'll geek out about this stuff. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Um, yeah. Because he had some pretty cool stuff, which we talked about in an early episode uh, with – MirrorSync too, syncing two FileMaker servers directly to each other, um, which is pretty cool. Using a, using one as like a a failover or even like a load balance situation for servers. Yeah, I mean they, he's crazy over there. He just keeps yep. building all kinds of powerful technology. Yep, it's good stuff. So, what else do you have going on? Well, this uh, this FM log thing is interesting. It really, as I think about it, it's an exercise in how small and simple can you make um, a logging system. Uh, and there's so many other ones out there and good ones, but this is just one that we've really liked because it's it makes um, log records where the text of the log is in plain English. So it's not designed to be like a uh, the kind of a log where you can do an automatic restore of records that were deleted or if after the server crashed or, you know, re, what do they call that? Roll forward, roll back? Yeah, yeah. roll back. So it's just a, hi- it's just a history. Yeah, now this ta- is a history. This is a, a human readable kind of a log where you could um, have a portal on a detail page and say, these are the time, these are the specific fields that were changed and who, by, and when. So an audit log record is what you're talking about. Right. And so it tracks. 
um, user login and log out. So you can do a query on the log table and say who's been using the system and how long was each session. You can track uh, views of a layout where they didn't even edit anything, but you're just seeing what record is being looked at. You can track script running and layouts being entered. So that means you can then get some stats on which layouts are not being used and which scripts are not being used. Yep. Because um, that's a really hard thing to know, and none of the other tools really, you know, that's important. So you put, and so we've got it down. So basically, there's a single script. Well, there's two scripts that you paste in. One of them um, is the one that actually just makes the log record, and it's just got a handful of lines of code. There's a log table that you paste in with six fields, which is basically creation date and time, uh, timestamp, and creator name, uh, the type of the log record, the text of the log record. Um, and then there's uh, the other script is the one that senses whether you're not running, uh, the script is running server-side. Uh, so if, like, and if it's actually compatible to be run server-side, and then it calls the second script server-side, otherwise it runs locally. So pretty simple. So that way if you've got a solution that runs on the server sometimes and runs on an iPad sometimes, it works by, by calling a single script. And perform script on server can create I don't know, somewhere, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 log records per second. Yeah, it's... Fast. Yeah. And so there's zero uh, wait. There's zero lag time for the user if they're just using the system. So if you go to a record, you click around, you type an address, and you, know, you tap from field to field making changes, every single time you tab out, an on-script trigger is running, which tracks that particular change. So there's a little bit of work for the developer to say, these are the important fields that I want to track. Um, these are the layouts I want to track. These are the scripts I want to track. Um, but then once that's done, it just kind of silently, quickly um, tracks log. Now, how did you wire it up? Because um, in the past, what I've wired up against is the uh, on-record uh, commit. No, I usually wire it up on, on record save because I only want to know if something's changed. Actually, save doesn't always work that way because if you change something and change it back, that's technically a save. Okay. Um, not actually, not even record save. It's really like value. Um, I'd have to look at it. We, you know, I just usually copy and paste from everything. So, <laughs> so like, um, let's see. I'm looking at one right now in the tool. Yeah. So the way that I've done it in the past is um... object save. That's what I meant to say. Oh, on objects. So you're putting on each of the each of the objects that are saved. Yeah. So I put it on on layout enter. There's a couple of different ones you can put on the layout depending on how you want to do it. So if you want to track layout enter, that tracks when you're coming into the layout to see that, to tell you that the layout is being used. Right. But then also there's on record load. So if you go to the layout one time for like a company detail, one log record says, "Oh, okay. Well, this this isn't actually." Uh, this layout is used. Then you flip through and look at 20 different records. Now it's tracking that you're actually viewing a specific record. And so it tracks the ID of the record you're looking at, the name of the table that you're in, and what the nature of the... So you might want to say, like, the table is company, and then the, the text of the log might be viewed company record for ABC Technology in Westminster, California, or something like that. And so you put a little, you know, that one bit of text is the only place you're doing any work at all, which is figuring out what you want the log record to read when you're looking at it later. Gotcha. 
Cool. Uh, and then on the layout, you might have some fields you care about logging and others that you don't. So you put that, that tiny uh, on object save script trigger only on the fields that you want to track. And then uh, you track that. Also, I, like, I recommend um, having a script for creation and deletion of a record and then logging those events as well. And then deletion of a record, you might want to actually uh, you know, modify the script to say, I deleted a record and these are all of the fields that I cared about. Put them all right into the log record. One of the systems we integrated this in, um, we, we make a log whenever the user does an export and we track the entire text of the export, like all the fields, all the, the count of records, you know, and make a huge log record. I, that actually kind of backfired because those log records got really, really large. <laughs> Some of them would be like, um, you know, 10 megs of text or something, you know, thousands and tens and tens of thousands of records, the actual text of the export stored in the log. Um, that was for like a, a public health kind of an audit where you really needed to know the information. So, but I, I think the point of it is you can kind of do as little or as much as you want. And we wanted to make it as ridiculously um, lightweight as possible. That's pretty cool. Yeah. The only other way that I've done it, I, I know that, for example, I know Ray Colligan has his logging Ultra system. Log. Yeah. Um, Fabrice Nordman, he had created a log at one point in time. Um, then you have, yeah, like you say, there's a bunch of them out there. But the for anybody who's wanting to build it itself themselves, I mean, they can go get yours. Yours is free, right? Yep. And so the only other way that I've done it that's a unique thing to know about the on-commit uh, script trigger is that the on commit script trigger is a uh, pre-trigger. So we've got our pre and post triggers mm -hmm. in Famicar. Mm -hmm. So the on commit will actually trigger the script and the script will run before the, the record is actually committed to server. Right. So this provides us with a little bit of insight. If we know that the script is going to run before the record is committed, we know that the values on the server are what they were before the changed values on the client have hit the server. Right. So if you run a perform script on server as part of an on record commit script trigger, you end up actually being able to tell the server to do whatever you want. And that can be copying a whole record. It can be mm -hmm. making a, a mirror of all whatever fields you want. It basically uh, provides the same type of functionality, but you don't, specifically specify which fields you want you just basically have to you know copy them as part of your server-side trigger so if you do an on commit so one of the other really tricky things which you really hit on here is so knowing the before and after of a value so like if you go in and you change the company name from abc to xyz um it would be really nice if the log record said change company from abc to xyz but to do that you have to both have the pre and the post value. And there's no single script trigger that actually can do that. So that's actually a little tricky because what you have to do, well, the way that I've solved that, which I don't know, maybe there's a better way, is to, um, to have a trigger when you enter the, the, the field and say, here's what the value is right now. And it just sets up a global variable with the name of the field and the value of the field. And then an on-object save that if the field is different, so if the, if the trigger actually runs, because object save means it's, it ran, 
then it goes and grabs that the value from the global variable and says change the value from x to y, um, which is which is a good way to do it. But that requires two uh, triggers. So your way of using the commit is interesting, but then what I wouldn't what I would be curious about would is the trigger would run before it's a pre-trigger. Um, but then if it runs the script asynchronously on the server where you're not having the checkbox to say wait for completion is not checked. Right. Um, does that trigger before or after? You know, if the server's really busy, would it be possible for the log entry to actually be made after the record is committed a fraction of a second later? That I don't know. I haven't tested it that thoroughly. In fact, I forget if I was turning that option, the wait, off or on. But see, the other thing about that is then this, the script that runs on the server side um, would have to have the complex ability to say, oh, this is the layout that I'm on. This is the context that I'm in. This is the record ID that I'm on. Go look at that record and see what its value is. And I definitely do not want to do that. So yeah, my, you, you do have to pass the the record ID and be able to establish some type of context. But typically, right, but, you're only dealing with one record, so it's just the ID that you need to pass and then, you know, establish what context you want. And I was just right. using developer layouts. Yeah, in FM log, all we're doing is we're having, um, we open up the file, and then we have a script trigger on open that says, if this is running server-side, then don't run the usual on open script. Um, and then the log script goes to the log layout, makes a new record, and just sets all the values. Set, so it sets the... Um, the table that you're in and the text of the log, and that's it. And then the um, because it's running perform script on server, it actually has the same credentials as the user. So uh, for free comes the uh, um, account name and the timestamp from the server. Hmm. Well, I mean, in regards of of seeing in one log uh, line, seeing what it was changed from and what it was changed to, using the on commit wouldn't necessarily uh, work you could get it to work but my thought process was always if i have a log entry that shows what the former value was in order to compare it if i've got the id all i have to do is look at the current version of the record and i know what it was changed to so i don't necessarily on the log entry have to have the from and the to because the to what it was changed to is what it currently is as i look at the record right so I always had that basis of comparison. Um, and one interesting thing is, you know, you can use, if you're going to perform, a, because the on commit is a pre-trigger, you can, when you tell the server to execute, you can tell it to use execute SQL. So with execute SQL, you could selectively choose whatever fields you want and make that log entry in whatever table you want. I just thought of that because that's not what I was doing. I was using an actual mirror or a clone of the same table but that'd be nice just to use execute sql on the server and say just go get these values currently and save them off to the side for me sure and again that would be interesting to see if there was a an issue where you didn't wait for the response and see if you could you know get it to trip up and the commit actually happens before the server side script executes and it gets the current what it was changed to not what from 
Yeah. So last week, Vince Bonanno from Beeswax was here in Portland presenting on um, the totally awesome new version of Inspector Pro. Um, and also, he did a presentation on his log tool, which is in um, development. And his is a very, very different take on it. And I would put, like, if I, in my, in my head, I'm constructing a, um, a plot of, like, the c- complex, powerful ones on one end that are super fully full-featured, and then a ridiculously easy one on the other end. Um, and that's very squarely where I want FM Log to be. I want it to be understandable by a mere mortal and put in and be, be able to be used by someone who doesn't have a lot of FileMaker experience. Um, because I think logging is super important, and I think you know most databases should have it, even if it's just for really, really basic things like tracking who is logging in and out of your system and when. Yep. Um, you know, things like tracking record views is only important in certain systems. Tracking field changes may only be important in certain systems. Um, but I think, you know, who's actually using it, <laughs> I think that's actually pretty good to know for pretty much everything. All right, so check this out. Here's an idea. I've done this in past systems because one of the things you're mentioning is you want to know whether a layout is entered or used or, you know, what's going on. And so let's, let's take a hypothetical situation. We've got mm-hmm. a 100-layout solution. And in order to wire up your, um, your uh, triggers, granted, you're going to have to go to each of those 100 layouts, right? And you're going to have to do something on each of those layouts. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say you're going to be using the on layout enter trigger. And because that's the trigger that you're able to run a script, capture whatever, yes, the user came to this layout, the username was this, and then here's the timestamp. Here's something that I've actually used. I've actually used a web viewer to make a call to a URL which is hitting a completely separate FileMaker database mm-hmm. in order to capture environment information. So in this web viewer, which I basically, you can make it, you know, in the past I used the little one pixel trick. I don't know if you can make mm-hmm. it hidden now and the web viewer would still trigger. It may be that the web viewer can't have the hide calc applied. Right. But if you put in a URL that basically calls to FileMaker using either the XML or the, uh, the PHP, you can actually capture that data into a database and you can capture any of the environment data that you want as uh, token values within that URL. Like, what's the name of the uh, user account? What's the name? What's the persistent ID? What's the mm-hmm. layout that's being used? And basically, it captures it out of the system and makes it completely separate. You're not dealing with perform script on server. It's just a URL that opens. The only issue that you hit is each of FileMaker, each time a web viewer is loaded, FileMaker attempts to cache the contents of that web viewer. So in order to get the web viewer to constantly refresh each time you go to a new layout, you have to have some type of value that is completely new. Now that can be injecting as a part of the URL something like a UUID or anything. That causes the web viewer to say, hey, this is a different URL than what I had loaded previously. I don't need to show the cache version. I need to actually get this value. And the problem with web viewers is typically, depending on what you do in a FileMaker user interface, sometimes you'll get multiple calls of that web viewer on the same view. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, web viewers refresh when you resize the window. So if you resize the window, that URL, given that it's got a, a completely random, unique thing like a UUID, would actually make multiple calls to your server. Right. So it wouldn't be a true, like, okay, they entered this layout, and then I know that they left. It might be, 
hey, I entered this layout, hey, I entered this layout multiple times, but at least you know the layout's being used. But it's just a good idea that I wanted to throw out there in case anybody wanted to. It's very easy to use a web viewer in order to pass data to a completely separate system and just go put that on all of your different layouts. Hmm. I used to use a a trick like that, a one pixel by one pixel web viewer that called Google Analytics. Yep. And it made a call to track so that then you can get aggregated data of which layouts were used and which ones weren't. The way that I did that back then was I had a just I made a folder of uh of HTML files, one file for each layout. Um which then I had to maintain manually or I had a script to, you know, I could make a button that would create those files or whatever. But that was a little bit of a pain. So your method, I think, is kind of nicer because it's more automatic. And then it's actually using FileMaker too. Um, and the further abstraction is don't put the URL in the web viewer. Put the URL in a custom function. Exactly. And put the custom function in the web viewer. Then you can change the, you can change the URL in the custom function in one place and across your 100 layouts, that web viewer, just every time the user goes to that layout, you get information about the usage. Yeah, you can also turn on or off the whole system or turn it on and off selectively by users. So when certain users log in, you can change the, uh, val- you know, the value of the custom function or whatever. It can say, you know, t- turn this on or off or have another custom function that enables or disables the whole thing. Yep, like ignore full access privilege sets. Yeah, so like one of the things that I recommend, again, for pretty much every solution is uh, very often the question comes up, if, if you don't actually know all of your users who use it and can look at their computers and you want to say like, oh, well, what, of our 50 users, what's, what's this, the um, different resolution screens that they're using? Um, what kind of platforms are they on? How many of them are FileMaker Go? Stuff like that. So we grab a lot of environmental variables on the, first, on the on open script. And, you know, get IP address. You can get a whole bunch of things. Um, the persistent ID. And then so the, on the, the, the log record that gets made when the file is open can track a ton of details about that user or yep. about that, uh, yeah, about that computer, if you will, device. It is very cool to have uh, insightful knowledge about use, for sure. Yep. And then, yeah, come up with some different ways to graph or whatever. So, um yeah, so graphing, we had uh, in this module, we had like a graphing thing sort of built in, but it made it a little bit heavier, and it was, uh, a lot of data doesn't really graph well. Like if you wanted to say, oh, show me a list of all my fields that have ever been edited and plot them on a graph, <laughs> it became too much to really read that chart. Uh, you might want to re say that, that last sentence, nice. that last thing you said cut out on the uh, audio. Oh, okay, well, so like if you have a chart of, uh, like a bar chart, imagine, of, and let's say you have a fairly small solution, maybe 30, 40 layouts, and you want to see a chart of how often they're used in a, in a six-month range, it would be a really simple chart. You'd see um, you know, only, there would only be 40 bars on it, each with a number. But in that same solution, um, if, you had, if you were tracking every single field change and you wanted to track how, how many times each of those fields were changed, you might have 400 fields in that same solution across all of your 10 tables or whatever. And that would not be a very easy-to-read chart. So, you, um, so we, w- while we once had that automated charting thing built in, it, would, it, it was very easy to make charts that weren't easy to read, so we took it out. <laughs> yep, that does tend to happen when you've got too much data. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, if this tool catches on, then we can uh, keep building on it. But I've just, looking back, every single solution we've done for customers, probably, I don't know, between 50 and 100 in the last couple of years maybe, has, we've been integrating this tool into it. And whenever we, whenever we figure out a way to make it lighter or cleaner or easier to implement, we modify the master. And so now we're finally releasing that version we've been using, which has been very, very thoroughly tested. Well, I'm totally looking forward to it. I'm just going to head to your website to download. Yeah. And actually, the download link on our website connects to our WebDirect. Uh, so the, the file itself is actually inside of a WebDirect solution running on, our <laughs> running on an AWS server. So we're eating our own dog food. We actually were going to make our whole entire website be, AW, be uh, WebDirect. Yep. Um, but there was a couple things that really stopped that. I'm not sure if we've talked about this in the podcast. The biggest we, one was we did. <laughs> yeah, no support for uh, Firefox and no no method of do, of getting any kind of um, SEO optimization. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. But I like your new website. It's a but, nice look. But we did at least keep the downloads part as a database. Well, that's awesome. So all we ask is your email address, and we won't sell your name ever to anyone. <laughs> yeah, unlike some bigger companies, huh? Uh, I don't know if any FileMaker companies would, but no, not else FileMaker. Does. I was talking about other like, yeah. big corps. Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, cool. Like, a, like like a bank. Imagine like get a credit card and then two days later you're getting all this junk mail. Oh, dude, it's a plague. It's a plague. I my number for the longest time nothing and then somewhere somebody released something and now i get calls all over the place oh really oh, oh my man. gosh it's insane well you can put yourself on the do not call list yeah i've got to do something it takes a while but that does work that's good to know you can just google do not call registry and type your phone number in and then you're off of marketing lists well, i will do that well, is there anything else that you've got going on? or I don't know. Those are kind of the pretty two big things on my radar at the moment. Very cool. Otherwise, we're just both hacking away at FileMaker. Yep. You had an It's Not FileMaker. Did you want to hit on that? <laughs> I don't know how interested people are in the fact that uh, I was anti-Pokemon Go, and now I'm a Pokemon Go trainer. <laughs> <laughs> trainer? That's what they call them. Oh, my. I have kids and my kids got me into it and I did, I got addicted and it was this amazing thing that when you're not into something and you don't understand it and you don't see it, you can, if you have both perspectives, like you were against it and then you're for it. So I was like, I didn't want my, I I was okay with my kids playing it, but Mm -hmm. you know, you hear about all the, oh, it eats up massive data and uh, there's kids that are walking into traffic, you know, trying to get these creatures and those things you know it's hyperbole or whatever that is it's you know the media is blowing something up it actually doesn't eat that much data i mean we went we hardly ate any and all three of us were like sharing the same data plan and it was just a good bonding time to get out with my kids and stuff like this but it actually ends up being funny because You see these people walking around and looking at their phones and you assume that they're looking at, you know, information on their phone. Either they're Mm -hmm. dealing with their contacts or whatever. 
But mm-hmm. I kid you not, I bet you like 70% of people that you see walking around looking at their phone because this is so huge is like looking at Pokemon Go. And yep. if you look, if you see their thumb flicking up and down, they're, f- they're flicking Pokeballs at these yep. Pokemon. And it's so funny. But it does get uh, it does get addicting, especially if you've got kids and it's something fun to do with them. Well, yeah, and I've heard like you know the other benefits. Occasionally, there have been a few reports of like uh, of people walking the cars, which is horrible. But also, there's millions of kids who are out getting exercise and they're not sitting inside, you know, um, playing on the iPad, um, but they're actually running around doing stuff. That's that's a very good thing. That is, uh, it's actually surprising. There's a little thing they have on this. Uh, the little game, it's called Sightings, which is basically when these quote-unquote rare Pokemon, well, I don't know why I did the quote-unquote, but these little rare Pokemon show up, and it goes mm-hmm. you this little outline of the creature if you haven't caught it before. Well, my kids have watched Pokemon. I didn't grow up in that era, but they know what it is. They're like, hey, hey, Dad, oh my gosh, this is coming up. And so it's funny. We will actually like... We'll all get together, we'll get to the door, and we're going outside to go hunt down this little virtual character, and that's exactly right. I mean, they're like out running to go catch something, and it is getting them out in terms of a video game experience instead of just sitting. And so it it really is cool in that regard. It's going to be a measurable effect on public health, I think. It's a measurable effect on just the number of people when you go out to these locations where they're... Uh, they have these things called pokey stops. You go mm-hmm. out there and you're just like, there's a bunch of people in the park here. There was not this many people there before. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool. Well, maybe look at it again. I played it. I caught my I caught exactly one. <laughs> <laughs> and then thought, I'm 50 years old. I can't be doing this. <laughs> yes, you you definitely have to have an impetus for it like kids or, yeah. you know, a reason, but uh if you do, it's a pretty fun thing to do with them. All right. Well, let's leave it on that, Dr. Petrovsky. All right. So we are going to head out here, right? Yes. All right. You've had out music? You've had out music? Ooh, smooth jazz. Right. All right, Matt. It was always good talking with you, friend. Great talking to you, too, sir. And uh, we'll talk more about FileMaker next time. All right. 